Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you all had a great break. I wanted to let you know about something that I've been talking a lot about on social media at Zibby Owens, which is the hashtag 22 in 22 challenge. We are... At Zibby Books, we are encouraging everybody, like all of you, to visit 22 bookstores in 2022. And we're going to provide a whole series of incentives for every five visits, and you'll be entered to win a $500 shopping spree, and you'll get fun things like bookmarks and all the rest. Plus, you'll be part of a great community of people all helping support bookstores, authors, and more. We're really, really excited about it. If you want to join, sign up. You just go to 22in22.net. That's 22in22.net and click I'm in and put your information. And then every time you go to a bookstore, you just quickly go back on the site and click log a bookstore visit. And then we'll be keeping track and we'll be following up with all of your different achievements and awards and everything. So please sign up, spread the word, 22 and 22, get your friends to join and start visiting bookstores and it'll be really fun and exciting. So here's to a wonderful 2022. I'm so excited that you're listening to my podcast and doing all the fun things that I have been trying to bring into the world. So here we go, 2022, hashtag 22 and 22. Jenna Bloom is the author of Woodrow on the Bench, Life Lessons from a Wise Old Dog. Jenna is the New York Times and internationally best-selling author of novels Those Who Save Us, The Storm Chasers, and The Lost Family, the novella The Lucky One in the collection Grand Central, and memoir Woodrow on the Bench about her senior black lab and what his last seven months taught her, available from HarperCollins on October 26, 2021, which of course has already passed. Jenna is one of Oprah's top 30 women writers. That's so cool. With her work published in over 20 countries, and co-founder CEO of literary social media marketing company, A Mighty Blaze. Jenna's New York Times and internationally best-selling first novel, Those Who Save Us, won the Ribolo Prize awarded by Hadassah Magazine and adjudged by Eli Wiesel. Jenna interviewed Holocaust survivors for the Steven Spielberg Survivors of the Shoah Foundation for five years. 
Jenna is a public speaker traveling nationally and internationally. For her first novel, she visited over 800 book clubs in the Boston area alone. Who knew there even were 800 book clubs in the Boston area? Jenna is based in Boston, teaching at Grub Street Writers, where she has been running master fiction and novel workshops for over 20 years. She earned her MA in creative writing from Boston University and was the fiction editor for AGNI Literary Magazine. For more information about Jenna and to share her real-time adventures, please follow her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hi, Jenna. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Woodrow on the Bench, Life Lessons from a Wise Old Dog, which I absolutely loved and which makes you come across, which you are, as the most patient, kind person ever in your care for your elder dog, but also just your care for your dog and your love for your dog throughout Woodrow's life. I mean, it was just really a beautiful opening into your soul. And so I loved it. Thank you so much. As a fellow dog mom, you feel me on this, I'm sure. I do. I feel you. I haven't. Yeah, I feel you. I I try. I mean, it's so hard because as you point out in the book, it's like with dogs, you just, you know, they will predecease. You don't know. There's a high likelihood that they will predecease you. And yet you love them so openly and with all your heart knowing this. It's like the ultimate better to have loved and lost. I think they teach us. Yes. They teach us how to love in that really brave way. When you love your kids, I imagine, because you're a mom and I'm not a mom of humans, but you know that they will knock on wood outlast you and carry your legacy of love and caring in the world. And with a dog, you, or any sort of fur pet, fur animal, child pet, you think, okay, there is a good chance I will out this pet will predecease me. And yet you take care of them and love them every day because that's what they do for you. They show us how to do that. It's so true. I think though, in showing us what it was like towards the end of Woodrow's life, you also reveal a lot about your own relationships in the past and even your girlfriend friendships and how you feel about asking people for help. And there's so much about sort of you and your resilience, your, you know, not wanting to bother people really that you almost are superhuman. I mean, the scenes where you're literally like carrying Woodrow up and down the stairs and going out in the winter and running around like your underwear and like all the things that you do. I was like thinking to myself, how was she doing it? I mean, you had this one line where you were like, I wasted all this time on cardio when really I needed to be using weight so I could lift this dog up the stairs. Right. (laughs) It's true. I did take a lot of physical care of Woodrow when he was old in his last chapter. He weighed 85 pounds and his back legs had gone because he's a lab and that often happens to them. And he could kind of get around, but then mostly not. And then he had heart failure. So for a while there, I was carrying him in this great harness called a help him up harness. So if anybody out there has an old heavy pet that they need to carry around, totally recommend it saved my back and it gave him another long chapter of his life. But it, it was really physically draining. And I think that I'm sort of anti-superhuman in Woodrow on the Bench because I had to learn to ask for help and I had to learn to let people help me, which is tremendously difficult for me. I was raised to self-reliance and that's my sort of family tradition. So Woodrow really taught me a lot about being less than superhuman and instead just being human and letting people in. It was such a valuable lesson that I'm still exercising to this day. You had one really moving scene where your mother had just passed away and right then Woodrow ended up having some inexplicable 
eye thing happened. I don't even know how to describe it. His eyes were essentially like bulging out of his head. And you were like, no, no, I cannot be the person whose mom dies. And then a week later, the dog dies. You were like, that cannot be me. I cannot write that narrative. And you somehow had to like get through it. And at the end of that little, you know, interlude, you said you thought it might've been Woodrow trying to just get you through the pain of losing your mom by making you focus on something else because it resolved itself like all on its own. Yeah. It was the strangest things to be. So my mom passed from breast cancer in 2018. And while she was in her extremity, my then fiance called me and said, I'm so sorry to bother you with this, but there's something going on with Woodrow's eyes. And his eyes were like, bulging out of his head in different directions. Like he was some weird pet cemetery dog who had been run over by a car and then put back together the wrong way. And nobody knew what it was. I took him to like dog ophthalmologist and a neurologist and all these ists and nobody could figure it out. And he had an MRI. They could look at his brain and it was okay. And then the next day after he had his MRI, survived it. He was 13, by the way. So it was people were just like, yeah, this is obviously like the end for him. But the day after the MRI, he pulled his eyes back into his head and was like, ha ha, mamu, because that was how he talked to me. He's like, I made my eyes bulge out in different directions. And wasn't that funny? Ha ha ha. And I was like, no, that was not funny. That was like $5,000 worth of not funniness. I was so grateful, though. And I do think that either Woodrow or my mom sort of manufactured that distraction for me, that sort of fresh panic so that I didn't have to feel so much like Bambi after the forest fire, which is how I think many of us feel after we lose our moms. I'm so sorry that you lost your mom. I'm so sorry. Thank you. you. Thanks. I know it's been several years, but it's not like that makes it any better. No, it's a journey. It's a process. You know this, you know about grief and anybody who has lost a parent or a primary figure knows that it's a journey you go on your whole life. It just sort of changes and takes you in different directions, but you're never really off that journey. And one of the reasons that I wrote Woodrow on the bench is so I could hold up a torch for people in some ways who were going through that in the same way that Cheryl Strayed held up a torch for so many of us with Wild, talking about losing her mom and the things that made her do. So Woodrow is not necessarily about my mom's death, but it is about grief and getting through grief and how sometimes a fresh grief recalls an older grief and how people process that and how you really, you survive it and you need your community to survive. I just read actually that for a book I'm going to do coming up about trauma, that anytime you play it back in your head, you know, like on a loop, right? Pressing, pressing play and reliving it, it actually imprints as new memories and it makes it even worse. Did you know that? I probably didn't describe that right. I knew it. No, you totally did. There's a lot of controversy about trauma and how to deal with trauma. And I write about trauma in my novels as well. So I'm fascinated with this topic that we used to think that talking about the things that happened to you, like you go on Oprah and like share, you know, all of your, your miserable life experiences and get affirmation that you were okay, that the talk therapy was a good thing. But if it's not done in a very specific way, you can actually re-traumatize yourself by going through the same experience over and over. So I'm really interested in how we help guide people through these memories of loss without re-injuring them and instead giving them some release. I think the jury is still a little bit out on that. Yeah. I have not figured out how to do that. I still think it's better to talk about things than bottle them up, but it just has to be in a way that you're not ruminating on it, I guess, or dwelling on it and instead giving it to other people for safekeeping and sort of using good tools of self-care to move on. 
I also loved in your book, just to go back to some of these scenes, how the bench and Woodrow, every time you took him outside, whether walking or going to the nearby hotel or wherever you ended up taking him, the day on the beach, anything, he you have this Woodrow effect, you called it, and people would just show their kindness to you, right? It, so it's like Woodrow held up this mirror and it was like this magic spell where you got to see the nicest bits of people. It's very, it's like very neat when you think about it. It was magic. Woodrow is one of those sort of magic dogs. I think some dogs have just very outsized and tremendous personalities that broadcast well. And Woodrow, even when he was in his dotage, he was sort of like an ambassador. We would walk around our neighborhood in Boston and people would greet him and be drawn to him as if they were being drawn to a magnet. And they would say, oh, how old is this dog? And can I pet him? And he would kind of smile at them with his big doggy grin and be like, hey, ladies, how you doing? (laughs) But it was really amazing to me that in a place like Boston, like a big city like New York or anywhere else, people tend to be fairly impatient and not connect to strangers easily. And yet when I took my old dog out and tried to get him across the street, we live on Commonwealth Avenue, which is a really busy artery of Boston, to his bench, traffic would stop for us and not so people could yell things at us, you know, that were angry, but because they could yell encouragement, like you got this dog, you go dog, you got it, mama, you can do it. And that had never happened to me before. If I tried to cross Commonwealth by myself, people would mow me over and be like, the light, use the crosswalk, you know? So that was the kind of effect Woodrow had. We could be anywhere. Once I was in a parking lot in Ohio, lifting him into my car and a lady came out of this hotel we were staying in. And she said, I just want you to know that what you're doing is really hard and I'm so grateful you're doing it and giving your old dog this kind of love and attention. And then she just got in her car and drove away. And I thought, God, thank you, universe. Like there's no reason for people to be that kind for you, but that was the kind of kindness Woodrow drew to me every day. Like what an incredible gift. That's amazing. It's like, it's just so beautiful. How did you, I know you have another dog now. How, how did that happen as like a PS to this book, you know, like what the aftermath. Yes. I would love to write like a sequel to Woodrow called Henry, like the pandemic puppy. Cause so many of us got dogs during the pandemic and the tagline for that book would be forgive me. Puppies are a-holes because <laughs> I had forgotten. It had been so long since I had a puppy that I knew intellectually they are tough to train and they make them cute for a reason. So you don't kill them. <laughs> uh, and now my Henry Higgins is his name. Henry is 19 months and he's settled down and he's being an absolute prince. Like he's been on book tour with me for Woodrow. And he has also been a little ambassador of joy and goodwill for everybody and saying, hi ladies. I love you ladies. So good. But I made this decision. It's something people People ask me about a lot. So be like, when do you get a new dog after you've let go of your old beloved dog? And I don't think there's a right answer for that. It's a very individual answer. For me, I knew I would not do well without a dog. Dogs are my structure and also importantly, my daily joy. Like the dogs are so silly and so loving. And I really needed that. So even when Woodrow was really experiencing his last health issues, I was looking at labs, you know, people who were breeding labs and saying, I would love to have another little lab who's not just like Woodrow, because nobody will ever be just like Woodrow, um, but somebody who will bring me that joy. And the best advice I got about this was from a friend of mine who sat with us on the bench. She had a young dog that she had gotten one month after her old dog passed, which seems really soon. And she said, you should get a new dog when it feels right to you. And you will think your new dog is really weird. 
because he's not the old dog. And that's totally true. I mean, Henry has all these mannerisms that Woodrow never did have. Like Henry loves to, shall we say, redesign shoes. Like he redesigned one of my coach sandals by stripping the sole off it. And I keep looking at him thinking like, who are you actually? He's obsessed with my building's door stoppers. And he gets a door stopper and he's like, best day ever, it door stopper and runs all around the building, which these things Woodrow never did. But I kind of enjoy the process of discovery and thinking, who is this new little soul I bought into my life to do all these zany things? So I wish that for any dog owner who has lost a dog and is thinking about getting a new one, I hope you can expand your life in your own time to make room for that joy. Okay, we can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use, so I got it, and now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you, and it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a 100 times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and it makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life360. Visit life360.com or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. And what's the latest with Jim? Oh, Jim. Okay, so for those of you who have not yet fed Woodrow, Jim is my former fiance who was Woodrow's dog dad for like seven years of Woodrow's life. And we we're really close. We're still incredibly close friends. Jim lives at my family house in Minnesota. He's a severe weather photographer, so that's his base. And we correspond like daily about Henry. And he keeps sending him like silly Henry videos and silly Henry photos and silly Henry everything. And I think Jim is one of those people... I'm very lucky to have this in my life. One of these people who has become family to me after Mm -hmm. being romantically involved, we're not romantically involved anymore, but he is somebody who will always be in my life in a very profound way. And that's, that's kind of a hat trick. And it's really due to his patience and his understanding and me writing about him and giving that (laughs) the green light. That's a pretty generous act. (laughs) I'm just really grateful to Jim. He's a great guy. Okay, Jenna. So I know you've also started a mighty blaze with Carolyn Levitt during the pandemic, which has now become this major force in helping authors and doing all this great stuff. Talk a little bit about a mighty blaze. And then I want to like touch on the rest of your writing because I know you have novels and you're so prolific. So talk about a mighty blaze first. 
I would love to. And it takes one to know one, Zibby, because you started Zibby Books. And before that, and moms don't have time to everything and the anthologies. You brought so many writers together and helped connect us all during the pandemic, but also before the pandemic and also after the pandemic. So when the pandemic first started to close in on us in March 2020, I was watching in total horror as my friends' book tours were being shut down one by one, like all during that first awful week that I'm sure everybody remembers, they just sort of winked out. And a book is such a labor of love. It can take people three, five, 10, 20 years to write a book. You get one shot to kind of launch it into the world. And I didn't want those books to get extinguished. And so I went to Caroline, who basically is like a heart in human form. She was doing a video blog tour called not everything is canceled or nothing is canceled. And we fused forces to put together a social media platform called A Mighty Blaze on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And every Tuesday we featured the new books that were dropping so readers could find those books all in one place. And it gave writers also a place to talk about their books. And then because it was one of the few initiatives that existed at that time, it quickly blazed out of control. I mean, I was working 16 hour days in my underwear, just trying to keep up, but we are trying to give a voice and a platform to every writer who is publishing during 2020. And thank God initiatives like yours came along so that we could all loft people up, friends in fiction, same thing, right? So we could all loft people up and get them to readers who were then watching in their homes saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for connecting us. And now the blaze, I call it like my little TV network because we do what you do. We have author interviews Every week, and we have regular shows like The Thoughtful Bro and Lit Chick and Mighty Mysteries. We even have a baking show. We feature debut authors. We do Friday Frontliners featuring authors like Erica Jong and Cheryl Strayed and John Irving. We have Lieutenant Colonel Vinman on. I mean, it's it's just a craziness. And what an incredible privilege to have a new chapter in my own life that is for service, that connects writers with readers and, and brings us all together in this big community. I hope you get as much satisfaction out of this as I do. I love talking to writer people every single day. So it has just been an amazing, amazing experience. Well, I think it really just speaks to the need that you, I mean, there was such a, a need in the marketplace, so to speak, not, not that it's a market, you know, not that we're doing this as a market, but there was just such a need. There was such a vacuum when everything started happening and it, Sometimes it takes a smaller, more nimble person or company or collection of people to do what isn't being offered, right? So I'm so glad, you know, it's just so nice when Mighty Blaze and you're right, Friends in Fiction is amazing. Having all these resources, especially as authors ourselves, like have places to go. You were so nice to have me on when my anthology came out and Friends in Fiction and like everybody, I don't know, it's just very nice. And also I've found that, before I like started this whole thing, I did not realize like authors are my favorite people and like so great, such good people. I mean, it's hard to find like a terrible person who's written a great open stirring memoir. You know what I mean? You're going to find a good person. So there are always these rumors that like authors are strange and maybe creepy and were ill-tempered or whatever. And I grew up thinking of myself self as aspiring to being like one of those writers who shows up drunk at festivals and is like, ah, you don't know me. And like, it becomes sort of a literary legend, but I never quite made it to that status. I think, honestly, we have been working with people since March, 2020, who have every right to be divas, like every right to be like jerky if they want to, just because they've achieved this literary stature. There hasn't been a single person, not one in all of that time. What is that? Like 18 months now? Something my math is off, but you know, and all of that time, we have not had a single person who is a pain to deal with. Everybody has been totally lovely, and the writing community is incredibly supportive. And I feel grateful to be able to share that with people as well. And then take me back to when you started writing fiction. 
Oh my God. I was four. <laughs> Literally, I started writing stories when I was four. My dad was a journalist. He was a broadcast journalist and wrote for Walter Cronkite and Harry Reasoner and Dan Rather at CBS and then wrote for GMA. And so I grew up listening to his typewriter and like, please tell me that you remember what an actual typewriter sounds like. Like it's not just an app invented by Tom Hanks. It's like a machine that we used in the olden days to write stories. So all I wanted to do ever was be a writer like my dad. And when I was in my teens, I wrote short stories. I won the 17 magazine national fiction contest when I was 16 and thought the world owed me a living as a writer. Subsequently, only to find out, Naya, <laughs> nothing behind you and shook her tag. She's like, time's up, ladies. It dog time. But I found out shortly that the world owed me a living in food service. And that was what I did for like 15 years while I was trying to publish short stories and novels. I went to grad school so I could be a teacher of writing as well, which I love to do. I teach for Grub Street Writers now, which is phenomenal. And it took me until I was 30 before I published my first book. So I just want to say to all of you writers who are struggling and aspiring out there, it's not an instant gratification profession, but it is the most rewarding thing when something that you make with your brain gets out into the world and changes other people's lives. It's such a magical thing. And I'm very blessed to be able to do this. What are you teaching? Are you are you teaching now at Grub Street? Yes, I'll be teaching my novel workshop, which I've been running for, I want to say like 15 out of the 21 years I've been teaching for Grub Street. People, it's not even listed on their website because people get grandfathered in. And so like I've been working with the same people, some of them for 20 years, some of them for six Oh my gosh. Yeah, so it's an amazing privilege. And many of the authors that you feature and I feature have been through that workshop. And I just- Really? Yes, and I have people that I'm going to send you for 2022 who have books that are going to be coming out in 22 and 23. That also is, is, it taught me, I think, how to create community and how to maintain community. And right now, like so many teachers, I'm grappling with the question of, do I continue to do online so I can have authors from all over the world be in this workshop as during the pandemic? Or do I go back to in-person so I can hang out with my peeps? So I think maybe a little bit of both. And I feel like, I don't know, do you feel this way that the world is going to be that way from now on that we have in-person events and then supplement them or complement them actually, I should say, with virtual events that are equally powerful and have advantages? Yes, I think you're right. I think it's going to be, I think it's sorting itself out which ones should stay virtual and which ones would be better off being in person and you know how we can do that. But yeah, I mean, access to people and people coming together from like all over the world. That's the coolest. I love that part. Same. I mean, I had dear friends who were in Colorado and California taking my novel workshop who would not be able to do it if I did mm-hmm. it in person. So I think I might do that virtually and then just have a lot of brunches and parties. Yeah. yeah. People, right. Maybe like just... once or once or twice a semester or something, have a little, right, or every weekend, even, or every, <laughs> I, do, I love to throw a party. It's true. That's what, I meant like everyone from all the States, but yes. Yes. My, my point is I'm not quite as ambitious as that. Yes. Whoever's in town can just come and have a bloody Mary is the way I think of it. So aside from the sequel to Woodrow, which I hope you are taking notes for and everything and actually writing, what other projects are you working on and teaching? And Mighty Blaze. Not that you need another another project. Yeah, I think, right, exactly. Don't tell my agent that because I know she would love for me to sort of shut down some bandwidth on the other endeavors and get back to work on a new book. And I'm planning to do that this winter. Um, And you know what it's like to sort of be running on all cylinders. You make the time for the things that are important. So I'm not really sure. I'm taking notes for the the Woodrow sequel that the Henry, like, pandy puppy follow-up. 
and sort of my Instagram and social are my notes for writing dog books because they are memoirs. But I just this morning texted my friend, Mark Cecil, who's the thoughtful bro on the mighty blaze and said, I have a book idea that I'd love to walk around with you next week. Like let's like air it out and do a writing session. And it, it's very rare that I have these ideas where I'm just like, boom, thunderbolt. But that's what I require to start a book. I'm not very disciplined in the way that some of our friends are like Pam Jenoff, you know, starts a book, like finishes a book in the morning and starts a new one in the afternoon. I admire this so greatly. It's totally not me. I need to feel really emotionally gripped by an idea. But I thought, oh, I think I have an idea and start tapping my fingers grinchily together. And so I'm going to kind of explore that for the rest of the year. And then if that write some short stories about it, if that holds water, then I'll work on it. It would be historical fiction again, I think. Wow. So cool. Busy, busy. I know. It's amazing. (laughs) It's good to be busy. I like being busy. I like being busy too. A productive life is a rewarding life for me. Very true. So what advice would you have for aspiring authors? Never give in. I have on my wall above my desk in my study, the Winston Churchill quote, never give in, never give in, never give in. And I think you have to be unrelentingly optimistic about your chances to push through an industry that is often indifferent seeming. It's not, you know, agents and editors and publishers really want to get good books out there. And there are so many books that are aching to be born And just cutting through a lot of the process that it takes to get your book out there, you have to have a great steely belief in yourself and in the world that you've created, whether it's fictional or it's memoir. So I would just say never give in. It's equally important to have grit as talent in this industry. And I know you're giving authors a shake in a a different way. So, I mean, all of us want to know more about that. We're so excited about your new model, your new publishing model. Oh, thank you. I know. I was thinking when you mentioned your, uh, your Grub Street novel writers, I was like, oh, don't wait for them for the podcast. Like what, like show me this, what they're working on first for Simi Books. But. Oh, I totally, oh, I would love to. Oh my God. You guys all heard that here first. I will. I've got, (laughs) you know, it's, it's an interesting industry too, because it's not, again, an instant gratification thing. You have a book that you give to a publisher and then it comes out a year or a year and a half later because it takes that long to alchemize a manuscript into a book. But I will definitely feed you my people. They're amazing. They're so talented. A lot of them are blazers because of, of course I poached from my own workshop. <laughs> I've got really strong community to create another community. But yes, we've got some fantastic, juicy, delicious novels coming your way. And is there anything coming up new and exciting from the blaze? What is coming up that is new and exciting for the blaze? Oh my gosh. I've been on tour for the last three weeks, driving around the country with Henry. So I have been really away from my captain seat on the blaze, but we are having a lot of holiday shows coming up. So we have like the best of 2021 shows readers. If you haven't gotten your recs or you want to add to your ever towering TBR pile, we're going to be compiling our recs from every genre. So that will be fun. We've got the baking show coming up. Jane Green just did our baking show and I'm going to be doing it in a couple of days for Woodrow. Cause I make maple bacon shortbread, which I sent to you. I think that maybe oh, didn't thank you. bacon in it. <laughs> thank um, you bribing people with. So I would love to share that recipe. And we have in the new year, we've got a lot of really exciting stuff coming up. I know we have like Fiona Davis coming on because she has a new book out. And now I'm like blanking on every single name of everybody besides Fiona, but anybody who has a book coming out in 2022, we have, we have poached them. So Yes. I was trying to aggregate that list and I'm like failing. I was trying to remember all the people who have been on my podcast who have new books coming out and I keep forgetting. 
Fiona Dunn. That's another one. Her. Yeah, Fiona is me. She has a book coming out in February. Rachel Berenbaum, who is yes, our debut editor, yep. Atomic Anna coming out, which I cannot wait to me interview too. her for. And we've got some, we've got some really fantastic stuff coming up. This week, actually, tomorrow. Oh my God, it's almost Tuesday. We have Gary Steingart coming on. Oh, everyone's mm-hmm. raving about that book. Um, I love it. I was listening to it. I love yeah, it. It's I haven't read it yet. Oh, it's funny because he's super funny. So I was listening in my car and laughing out loud while driving 1,500 miles from you know Minnesota to Boston. If you oh can make okay, funny, I will listen to it. You got to get it. Our country friends is what it's called. It's fantastic. yes, our country friends. I bought it last weekend, but yes, okay, it's on my list. <laughs> when do you have time to read? Like I, everybody must ask you this question. I mean, I read for like I read in the car yesterday for three hours, and I had to get through a couple books. You know. But yeah, that's just what I do. I don't know. You make the time. You must be a speed reader, also. I'm a speed reader. You're a zippy zippy reader. <laughs> Jenna, thanks. It's been so nice getting to know you. Like this pandemic, this I mean, through all this stuff. Anyway, can't wait to hang out. And thanks for everything. Me too. And I can't wait till the day when we can hang out in person. But meanwhile, let's keep comparing notes online. I just love this, and I love seeing you. Thank you. Me too. Okay. All right. Thanks. Bye, Jenna. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 